Welcome to the New Books Network. In this close look at Sophia Coppola's multi-award winning film, Lost in Translation, Suzanne Ferris's book of the same title uses the film's travel theme as a structuring device to detail the complexities of filming the 27-day shoot without permits in Tokyo, to explore Coppola's allusions to fine art, to examine the subtle color palette, the use of music over words, and the characters' experiences in and around the Park Hyatt Tokyo. Ferris also evaluates the filmmaker's distinctive cinematic signature and the elements that make Lost in Translation a cinema classic. Suzanne Ferris is Professor Emerita at Nova Southeastern University, and she has published extensively on fashion, film, cultural studies, and all things Sofia Coppola. Welcome, Suzanne, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Latoya, <laughs> and thank you for having me. I am so excited to talk I know. about Oh, oh my gosh. I know. As I was reading the book, I was like, I cannot wait to talk to Suzanne about this book. And really, I, th- what I really want to start off with is what led to you wanting to write about Sofia Coppola and Lost in Translation specifically, as opposed to, say... Marie Antoinette or On the Rocks? Oh, okay. Well, this is a very good question, Latoya. (laughs) It it actually happened in, I've been a fan of her work and I actually did write with a friend of mine, um, Mallory Young, an article about Marie Antoinette. So she has been someone who I've been fascinated with as a filmmaker. But then in 2017, I was looking at The Beguiled I watched the film and I was thinking, I need a new project. I need something to to work on. And then it just suddenly clicked for me. Um, for my first book, I followed the thread of fashion through all of her films um, and her extra cinematic work as well. I thought that then uh, it's connected to her narratives in terms of relationships between fashioning and identity. Um, There is an emphasis, as you mentioned, in Marie Antoinette and in other films on costume itself, heightened attention to that, and in The Beguiled, as you could see, but also that she has her own film style. She has a signature style, and she is also someone who has a personal style and has done work with fashion brands, including directing commercials. So I thought, okay, I can work all of that into my first book. And then I was going through my publisher's list. They also do the BFI film classics. And I thought, well, there has to be a BFI film classics about one of her films. And I discovered that there was not. not none of her works had been selected for close attention like this. And they, um, I proposed that we look at Lost in Translation because that's her most uh, famous, I think it's the most recognizable film. If you mention her to anyone, that's the one that they remember. And she won the Academy Award for screenwriting and she was nominated for directing as well. So that seemed like the one to focus on. Although I have to say, I'll admit up front that I have a soft spot in my heart for somewhere. And I think that there is another short book on somewhere in someone's future, uh, <laughs> because I really do think that that's one of her best films. So, so in a short way, that's how I came to land on Lost in Translation. 
And so just to, to go into the, the book quickly, because I, I've, I loved it as soon as I received it, I just plow through it. The chapter headings coincide with the film's travel theme. And so I was just wondering, what was your outlining process for the book and how did you decide on how you would structure it? Uh, well, that, it just came to me that Lost and Trans, for the, the BFI film classics, you have, um, they all have a, a certain brief. It's a very short book with lots of images, thankfully. And I had to find a way to say everything I wanted to about the film and highlight what I thought were the most enduring classical elements of it. And I thought at root, it is basically a travel story. And so I thought, okay, there are pieces of a journey. So you have all of the preparations that you do before you go on your trip. You have to stay somewhere. You have to then go out and explore the city. And then you eventually have to leave. And it just seemed to work for me so well, because then I could talk about the preparation for the film. Uh, I could talk about the two, the two most memorable scenes for everyone who watches Lofts in Translation is the opening image and then the ending. And I thought, okay, you have an arrival and a departure. And then as you've already intimated in your introduction, the Park Hyatt Tokyo is such, it's almost a character in itself in the film. So there you have the accommodations and Tokyo itself, that's what inspired the film, Coppola's own times there when she was promoting films and when she was working for her fashion brand, Milkfed. So that then there was the chapter on sites. And so I thought, well, there it is. I can fit everything into the journey. Um, So that was the structuring device that I used. Was there any part of the journey as you were going through that you, you just weren't able to incorporate that you wanted to? Was there anything that you wanted to focus on and you were like, oh, it really doesn't play into the themes, but I, I do want to talk about that at some point. I, I think that I managed happily to get in everything that I wanted to talk about. I am certain that real fans of the film are going to say, oh, well, but you didn't talk about this element. Uh, But I did try to talk about what I thought were the key moments um, of the film. I really did try to try to fit everything in that I could in a very short book. (laughs) <laughs> yes, because it is it is a it is a nice, very compact book, but it you I think you do a fantastic job of analyzing definitely the main points. Thank I wish you. I could show people the pictures in here. This is my favorite, the one with them at the bar. I love it. Well, and and I have to say that I I really have, um, I had great assistance from um, the production designer, Sophie Contento, um, and had access to some of the images in the BFI's archives, so I could get some of the behind the scenes photos as well as the film stills. So I'm glad that you do like the images, because I think that, um, as you also said in your introduction, and as I, I stress in everything I've written about her, Coppola is foremost, foremostly, first and foremost, a visual thinker. And so she does think in images. And 
the part of the inspiration for how those images appear in the film were her own uh, snapshots of Tokyo that she had taken. And for every one of her films, she creates a lookbook. Um, they've become, um, in her later films, a mood board. But at the very beginning, she would create a book for everyone who was associated with the film. Um, and she also creates um, playlists. She has certain music that goes along with it as well. So that people get the look and the sound of the film before they even get into the story. And so her own visual images of Tokyo inspired some of the most famous shots, like the ones of Charlotte at the window with Tokyo behind her. Some of those are, uh, she wanted it in a way to look like the snapshots that she had in her mind, her memories of her own personal trip that then become through Lance Accord cinematography, the snapshots that we carry around in our head uh, of the film. And I tried to include as many of those as possible. It, it's, there's so many images in the book, but I have to tell you, I had probably twice as many. <laughs> so I guess, I guess if there was one thing that I didn't get to include, it was all of the images that I wanted to, especially the way that they're, it's so carefully constructed. And I think you don't, it seems when you're first looking at the film as though it evolves organically and naturally, but the, it is very intricately structured. And there are great parallel scenes between the two main characters, between Charlotte, Scarlett Johansson, and Bob, uh, Bob Harris, Bill Murray. And they're, they're, before they even come together in the film, and they don't come together until... 30 minutes into the film, we see them separately on their own journeys for the first, you know, almost Which is a very film. important technique. I'm very happy that she used that technique because it was very important. Yes, in exactly. The film. Yeah. But they don't come, they meet like, like strangers on a journey, right? Partway through. But she sets it up that they're going to come together in this very subtle way through the, these matching visual images that if you have a chance to go back and watch the film and look at it again, you see how very intricately it was constructed um, in the process of filming, but also in the editing with her editor, Sarah Flack, um, putting it together in that way. They really are deliberately trying to, to hint at the way that they come together early on. Oh gosh, and I love this leads definitely into where I want to go with her styling, with her filmmaking styling. So um, you write in Lost in Translation that the film ingenuously and inventively manipulates cinematic conventions. And later in the book, you mention copalism to distinguish how she how she does her filmmaking. What does copalism entail? Like, I know we've been analyzing it a little bit just a moment ago, but as a whole, what, yeah, what does as, it As a whole, I would say, okay, so first of all, we talked about this emphasis on, on the visuals above dialogue. There's very little dialogue. And when there is dialogue, you pay attention because there's so little of it in the film. And you love the scene at the bar, the image of it, but it's also one of the most dialogue heavy 
scenes in the film and stands out because they don't say much in the rest of the film. Another key I would say is the rather slow pacing. You can see that, of course, at the greatest, I think, in somewhere where it's really minimal and slowed down. And um, many people would say not a lot happens in our movies. And that's, I think, uh, attributed to the slow pacing. But it's because they're more focused on emotion and mood than they are on plot um, and story that then it, they all have this rather slowed down pacing with the exception of the bling ring, but that's, that's another story. Um, it would all, it's also natural lighting. She has a preference for natural lighting. Um, and that was, that was actually a challenge when they were doing lost in translation in some senses in interiors, but in exteriors, that's a real advantage because then you can, film in the exteriors without having to do a lot of setup. And that allowed them to do this guerrilla style filmmaking when they were out in the streets of Tokyo. Uh, so that as well. And then you also mentioned color. And even though I think on the basis of Marie Antoinette, lots of people think that it, her films have bright pop colors. They're actually very muted pastel colors for the most part. And that has to do, of course, with the natural lighting as well. But also some of her photographic influences, including William Eggleston and other people who have given her those kinds of color tones for her films. And then, of course, the fusion of music. Um, the idea that music is an integral part to the filmmaking uh, I already touched on the fact that for her, that comes first. She gets the, well, actually second, I should say. She gets the images, but she's always listening to music as she's writing. And she gets the fusion of the image and the music is to her very important for establishing the atmosphere of the film and leading you into the story. So I would say that her really distinctive uses of music are also a component of what has come to be known as her style or copalism. Yes, and we talked a little bit about the music because I find that, especially, I know we're not talking about Marie Antoinette, but the music in there is very distinctive. And so when I went back to, to watch Lost in Translation, I did want to pay attention a little bit to how she uses music and how she uses it to uh, produce an effect in the audience. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it's very interesting in Lost in Translation because you have music operating on so many different levels. There's um, the music that is used uh, diegetically within the film, you know, the, the famous karaoke scenes. I mean, they carry so much weight um, in place of dialogue when the two characters are singing to each other through their night on the town at the karaoke bar. Um, and then also in contrast to the their amateurish performances that have real emotion as they're talking to each other. Um, you're, you know, I'm special, as Charlotte Johansson says, and he's, you know, Bill Murray, What's So Funny About Peace, Peace Love and Understanding, but also the Roxy Music song, More Than This. 
that he sings. You, you can see how they're communicating with each other. But those are amateur performances, and those are contrasted with the singer in the hotel who does these, you know, American standards like Scarborough Fair and Anna Ferris, who has who plays Kelly, the actress, who does her own like really over the top version of karaoke, too, so that you get that sort of mannered performance and inauthenticity versus then the authentic relationship between the two characters. But a lot of the music is um, Brian Reitzel deliberately did a score that blended Eastern and Western influences so that you can see, especially when Charlotte's out exploring um, the sites of Kyoto and Tokyo, you hear an ambient soundtrack that fuses Western styles with Eastern styles. And it then conveys the way in which she is beginning to become immersed in what the environment that had seemed to her at first to be foreign. And she is beginning to be transformed by her experiences of her time in Japan. And then you don't really get any music apart from the performances within the film that have lyrics until the very end. And the, the, one of the things that everybody remembers about the ending is that, first of all, you don't hear them say anything when they go say goodbye. They say something to each other we don't hear, and we shouldn't hear, in my view. Um, but you then hear the beginning of the Jesus and Mary Chains song, Just Like Honey. And that was so resonant with people in the who saw the film that it actually led to a revival of the group and they got back together and performed and at one point i forget what year it was but a few years later they performed at coachella and scarlett johansson came to sing with them so <laughs> the, the the film was was responsible for introducing them to a new audience and reviving um, their style of music. And um, Brian Reitzel, who her music supervisor, who does just amazing things, he brought in Kevin Shields to do some original music, um, including the song City Girl that also plays at the end over the closing credits. So it's interesting to me that mu music is all the way through, but what, like the dialogue, it's put in at moments or your, your attention is drawn to it at moments where it's really significant for communicating something not necessarily, you know, in place of the character's dialogue, but as a way of advancing the meaning and the connection between the two of them in nonverbal ways. Um, and, and you, I, I agree with you about the music in Marie Antoinette, like how, how better to then make clear to audiences that here you've got a young girl who is like all young girls and is interested in, you know, pop music, the new romantic music that she chose for that. But there it's really drawing your attention here. The way that the relationships develop is, is more subtle and the music works itself in, and I think in a, in a less overt way, but with equal care and attention. 
um, in order to advance the ideas of the film. Right. Oh, because I in actually just going back and looking at the film again, there were just these nuances that I didn't catch. Like after the the karaoke scene where they're they're singing to each other, and it it gives the strong inclination that they're singing those words to each other. Then they sit outside of the karaoke bar, and they're silent. But they're in that silence. There's so much, especially when she rests her head on his shoulder. Oh, I'm like, oh, Sophia. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or, or the or the when he's carrying her up to to her room and her shoes are slightly dangling off of her toes, giving the exception that she's finally found some form of comfort in this place where at one point she was a little bit all over the place. Like yes, now emotionally. Yes, exactly. You and you can see that Karen. And notice that you know you've you've touched on the fact that the film plays with the conventions because we do think that, you know, okay, here this is going to turn into a romance. This has got to be a romance, like all of the other travel stories where you get two people, two strangers come together. There's going to be a romantic connection. And it dances around that. And instead you have Rather than just a conventional, you know, romantic relationship or encounter, you have this very intimate connection between the two of them that that is maybe um, transcends any kind of romantic connection. And that is one of those, just as you say, very powerful scenes because the music carries over in a very um, subtle way as he is carrying her through the hallway and they've slowed it down and you begin to hear some of the sounds of the hotel and the, and the hotel has its own soundtrack. You hear the elevator ding, the fire alarm, um, the hush talk of people in the bar. There, there is a, um, a music that, or a sound that they were very careful to uh, retain and to fuse with the music. And that's one of those key scenes uh, before he then, you know, carries her down the hallway and puts her into bed and then leaves. And then leaves. Yes. And it's very, it's, you can tell that Sophia wanted the, the hotel to be a character as well. Like she wanted us to, to be like, okay, now this is a character too. Don't, don't forget that when you're looking at these, these humans evolve. Yes, it, well, and we see those gigantic shots of the pool, um, and it, she's described it, and I think you can see in the film the way that it, it seems like this very strange place in the middle of downtown Tokyo, the vibrant entertainment district. There is this very American hotel with a New York bar, and it, it looks inside like any generic American hotel. And so it's an oasis. But I think that the hotel is really interesting because even though it's an American chain, you know, and, and an icon, the it's a place of transience. People are always coming through. So it's, it's just a temporary home. You establish your own little box, your own little room in the hotel. And they do that so well where... Bill Murray, Bob Harris is this big celebrity. So he's got a bigger room. He's got a suite and it looks 
like he's not really living in it. And then Charlotte it has got a smaller room and she's filled it with all of the things, her, the book on tape that she's listening to, the knitting that she's got. She tries to decorate it. So through the, their own s- private spaces in the hotel, visually, she Coppola actually tells you a lot about the characters that Bob Harris is, you know, part of this very manufactured world of celebrity, whereas Charlotte is trying to make her way in a very personal um, world of her own. And she's at a point of crisis and he's at a point of crisis, but they're two very different kinds. Um, And the hotel reflects that. And, And it gives you, I mean, in terms of a story, it just sets everything up for you. You can have these chance encounters at the bar, at the pool, in all of the public spaces. It's rife for that. And the way she plays with that at the ending, before the ending that we all remember, there's a beautiful fumbled ending in the hotel space where you would expect it to happen, in the lobby, by the elevator, before he exits the doors to go to the limo that's going to take him to the airport. And the way she plays with that space inside the hotel and the elevator, to me, the elevator is, you know, the hotel might be a character, but within the hotel, the elevator is the character in Lost in Translation. It's where they first see each other. It's where their final goodbye takes place inside the hotel. So it's the, the, and there's lots of things that happen in the elevator in between. Um, so I, I would say that then probably the elevator could, could get star billing here. Yes. And, then it's, <laughs> and that, that, that it's mirrored. So not only when it closes, you don't really know what's going on in the inside, but you can see what's happening on the outside. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes oh. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we hear it. If, if you go back and you just listen to it, um, we hear the little ding of the elevator or the whoosh of the doors. Um, they, they went to a lot of trouble to record the sounds of the hotel so that they could play those um, and, and reinforce the, the substance of the hotel, how substantial it is. Yes, I was, I was saying, God bless the sound engineer who had to, to retrieve all of those, those little nuances and those little sounds. Yes. To, yeah. yeah. And Richard, Richard Beggs, who is the sound designer, um, Brian Reitzel did the music. Richard Beggs is her sound designer. He went back after they'd finished filming to make sure that he got a lot of those sounds from the hotel um, so that they could use them in the soundtrack. So in the in the final chapter of of Lost in Translation, the book, you discuss the film's reception, both the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. Why was that important for you to incorporate into the book? Well, I, I think first of all that I was, you know, part of what we do is with the BFI series, the British Film Institute series books, is to try to establish why this is you know, a film worth remembering now. Um, it's going to be 20 years. It's 20 years this year after the fact. So why should we still be talking about it? So um, part of that was important for what the book was supposed to be doing. But it, I think it's also worth 
it, with this film in particular, revisiting some of the criticism that it has received because Coppola's films have, as you said, received their um, a lot of praise, but they also have received, I think, some significant criticism for what she has left out and the ways in which she she does a marvelous job of, you know, fulfilling the old adage that you write what you know, um, of giving us insight into worlds that she knows intimately and that we might not, and that we are not necessarily a part of, giving us insights in, in particular into um, worlds of celebrity and privilege that most of us don't have access to. And showing, I would say, in most of her films, the negative consequences of that um, for many people who are part of them. So it's not, I, w- I would say that the people who think that she glamorizes privilege, I would say they haven't looked carefully enough at the films to see the way that she complicates that. But it is, I think, worth considering that Lost in Translation, there are certain scenes that were at the time um, held up as being unfair to Japanese culture. And they, they, they hinge on the scene with the escort, where we find her mixing her R's and her L's, lip my stocking rather than rip my stocking. And also another scene where Bill Murray is being directed by a Japanese director and he can't understand what he's saying. And there's a translator. And then later, there's a similar scene where he is being uh, photographed by a Japanese photographer, and they have the same kinds of mistranslation. So certainly, it's part of the the title, the whole idea that these are characters who are at sea in a foreign culture. Um, But many people have taken, I think, an unfair leap and said that this makes Coppola racist for those scenes. And what I've tried to do is I've tried to be very even-handed in looking at the criticism that they, you know, it you could see, I, I would say, that they do trade in stereotypes. But I would encourage people when they're watching again to recognize that this is, for example, they all ha- are associated with the character of Bob Harris. Bob Harris is someone who is um, really divorced, I would say, from the people around him owing to his celebrity as well. And in both of those scenes, I see the way that he is trying to be manipulated into performing a role that he's no longer comfortable with. In the scene with the escort, she wants him to be, she wants this to turn this into some sort of like S&M fantasy scene. And he didn't invite her. He doesn't know why she's there. He doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing. And so I think part of that is to show his complete discomfort with that. And in the other scenes, the both of the, the director and the photographer are trading on these stereotypes. They're trying to make him into, for the Suntory commercial that he's filming, and for the print campaign that goes along with it, they're trying to make him into some sort of uh, rat pack figure or a faux James Bond. And so they're trying to make him fit into a an action hero role that he no longer feels comfortable in. So to me, I think if you you take those out and put them into the context of Bill Harris, um, Bob Harris, sorry, 
I'm, I confused the two, which is very easy to do. Um, but that that gives a little bit more nuance, and I think that um, you can see as well the ways in which Car- Charlotte's character, by contrast, is curious about Japan, immerses herself in the culture. The final scene has her not leaving, but actually staying and moving through the crowds, and so I think it's trying to represent in ways how disorienting travel can be and how, you know, Bob Harris should be rightly criticized for not, you know, doing enough to educate himself about the culture that he's moving through um, and not acting like an ugly American. Certainly we can hold him up to that. But I would, I would argue for looking at the film in that kind of context. And I also think that for us looking back at it, it's hard for us to think about Japanese culture the way that Coppola did 20 years ago, because think about how karaoke is now something that, okay, everybody, you know, does karaoke. We can do karaoke at home. Um, we, we, you know, everybody goes out to Japanese restaurants and has sushi. And so to us, Japanese culture as well is not... Um, as foreign as it appeared to the characters or that it might have even appeared to some of us from a distance 20 years ago. So I I just wanted to try to address, take head on some of these criticisms um, and, and, you know, say, yes, it's not right to be mocking Japanese people, but to also put it into the context and to also put it into the filming context. There were um, Japanese assistant directors and crew too. So it wasn't just like the Americans came in and made fun of the Japanese and left. I think that there is, Coppola was trying to um, engage, I think, with the culture and represent how it had felt to someone who really hadn't experienced it before. You know, not someone who's familiar with it, not someone who's well-traveled, not someone who has studied the culture before immersing themselves in it. And I think that's part of the travel narrative as well, for good or for ill. There, There are a lot of people who are simply tourists rather than travelers and you know, are, are some place to take from it um, and not really influenced by their their experiences. But in this one, I think it's worth, in this film, it's worth pointing out that Bob Harris goes home. He goes back. Charlotte is still there. And I think the differences between the two characters says a lot about the complexities of um, of treating the culture. Also in that chapter, you write a little bit about Scarlett Johansson's later movies, which made me want to ask you, what did you think that Charlotte and Bob would be doing 20 years later? Did you think about that while writing the book? <laughs> Were you like, what What would these characters be doing now? <laughs> well, in my mind, Bob Harris goes back. It's quite clear that he goes back to his family. And I think that he has finally come to terms with the fact that, okay, he's no longer, you know, um, an action. He might be like a fading 
celebrity. Um, he's no longer young enough to play the kinds of roles that we see actually her character Stephen Dorff play in Somewhere. He's not the young hotshot starring in the action films anymore, um, but that he's made a little bit of peace with that and that he's recognized that he's had his time and he can go back and reinsert himself into his family. He's gotten over his crisis in my mind. Um, so he's probably then, you know, doing still doing interviews and maybe an occasional commercial and maybe he's gotten some small roles in some films. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Whereas I, I really do. There are some people who think that um, in the final scene, Charlotte goes off and she's, we see her walking through the crowd and she approaches us directly forward. Um, and she has, she's smiling with happiness and it's the same um, sequence that you see at the end of somewhere where you see Steven Dorff coming toward the camera as though he's finally found a purpose and he's moving forward um, rather than in circles as he is in somewhere. And to me, we don't see her husband played by Giovanni Ribisi. He's been off um, filming and he's supposed to be coming back, but I don't think that the film suggests that there's any kind of resolution to their marriage. I think Bob Harris's marriage probably gets over its rocky uh, passage, but it seems to me that Charlotte is forging her own path, I think separate from her husband. So I imagine, I don't know, maybe, maybe she even stays. Maybe because she becomes so immersed. I think she's fascinated by um, the especially the spiritual dimensions, but she's also fascinated by the arcade by, so maybe she stays in Japan and, and finds a way to put her philosophy degree. (laughs) 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 Okay. So a little bit before we started, we talked a little bit about the other the other book that's been public that you've published on Sofia Coppola, the Bloomsbury Handbook, and I was wondering, will you be publishing any other BFI classics on any of her other movies? Oh, you, well, is that, well, isn't that a lovely idea, Latoya? Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for mentioning that. That also. Um, in, in addition to the first book I did, The Cinema of Sofia Coppola, I, I had the real privilege, I was invited to edit the Bloomsbury Handbook to Sofia Coppola. And we have over 25 scholars who've written about her feature films, about her music videos, about her commercial work, about acting in her films, about all of the the issues um, uh, that you could possibly talk about, you know, post-feminism, feminism, um, race and class. Uh, it, it's it, We try to account for absolutely everything in her career um, it, beyond her feature films, her television special, A Very Merry Christmas, um, and her the music video she directed, everything. Um, but I, I would say, I don't know if I will have the opportunity to do it, although I would be delighted to, but I really do think that Somewhere stands out to me as one of her best films. She did win Best Director at Venice, the Venice Film Festival for it. Um, And I do think that it is an amazing film. And I think many, it's, 
it distills as the elements of copalism that we were talking about, but it also carries through many of her common uh, themes like celebrity and identity and relationships. And someone described it as though you have in Stephen Dorff and Elle Fanning sort of younger versions of Bob and Charlotte. You have a man who's also going through a celebrity going through a crisis whose life is changed by the arrival of a young woman. And in this case, it's his daughter. Um, and so the kind of connection that they discover. Um, and then, of course, those father-daughter relations get uh, an updating for older characters in On the Rocks. So that's clearly you know, a recurring theme. So if I had to pick another one, I would pick somewhere. So what would you pick? Oh gosh. I think you already know. You would pick Marie Antoinette. I would. I love that. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love that movie so much. (laughs) (laughs) And I do think a lot of it has to do with the visuals, but it's also the way she wrote this, this individual that a lot of people have these misconceptions about, but that, you know, she reminds us in that movie that Marie Antoinette was a young girl who really had, who was just doing young girl things and really had very limited control over her life and what she could promote. And so, yes, if I, if I had a choice, it would definitely be analyzing that movie and that character. (laughs) Well, I, 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 I could see a pitch for that too, because as you said, the music, but also I think the film doesn't get enough credit for the transition from young girl into the older woman and the way in which we see that entire passage. And that final image, I know you remember it, of the um, destroyed chamber. It, it, someone has said it looks like um, the cover of an album, an album cover shot. It does. You know? It yeah. does. It yes. does. The and visuals. The, the visual and the quietness. The, yeah. the, oh, and just the last two scenes, the ride away from the palace and then the decimated palace, the, the quietness, but then the incoming of the music as well. Oh, yes. Yes. Love, well, I, I, so I could see that too, Latoya. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> love it. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne. This has been amazing. I cannot wait to see what other writing you do. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) It has been such a pleasure to talk about with you about Sophia. Um, I could talk about Coppola, as you can tell, for days. So Mm -hmm. thank you for giving me the time to talk about Lost in Translation with you.